And we're going to continue our series through Judges. Um, last week we had a standalone preach, but we're continuing from Judges chapter 10. So if you've got your Bible, you want to open that up now, that'd be great. Um, the verses will come up on screen as well, but at, at times there's sort of there's gaps in there. So it's good if you've got your Bible uh, to hand. I'll be using um, the ESV version. That's what I prefer to preach from um, and what I spend most of my time in study. Throughout this series, we have seen God rescue his people. We have seen that he is faithful again and again. He delivers them from all their enemies. And he does this by raising men and women who are flawed. He empowers them and he, through that man or woman, delivers his people. Our hope as a leadership team is that as we go through the book of Judges, you will see more clearly the heart of God through it all. Um, I just want to uh, give a little word of warning. If you're not familiar with these chapters of the Bible, it's a bit dark. Um, you might be thinking, oh, great, um, but dark as in quite sad. Um, and I, I, it's kind of like my disclaimer of the preach at the beginning, um, which I didn't do in the first service. And I was like, oh, perhaps I should have said something there. Um, it's quite a sad story, this so- the story of Jephthah. Um, he was a Gileadite, that was a tribe of the people of Israel, and he was very much a social outcast. And as I said, this was a particularly spiritually dark time in the history of God's people. Just a quick recap. There's been a brief but bloody rule under the son of Gideon, Abimelech. And then there's a period of 45 years of peace under two other judges, Tola and Jir. But then the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they forsook God. They turned away from him and they didn't serve him. At this stage in their history, Israel is serving all the gods, all the gods in, in the surrounding areas and the peoples, even the gods of the Philistines and the Ammonites. They have become essentially indistinguishable from the world around them. And God's anger is kindled. He hands them over to the Philistines and the Ammonites. Through serving their idols, the Israelites become crushed and oppressed, enslaved, as you like, by the Philistines and the Ammonites. Their service to idols has brought them into slavery to idolaters. And that's what idols do if we serve them. There's a long period again of 18 years of oppression, 18 years Um, And it's only the imminent threat of war that's on them that leads them in, in severe distress to cry out to God. They say to him, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. God reminds them, did I not save you? If if you have your Bible, it'll list all the different kingdoms that God has saved his people from. Did I not save you? Have I not been faithful to you? Have I not delivered you again and again? He says, yet you've forsaken me and served other gods. Let them save you now in your time of distress. The Israelites 
I think, get the point. With God's rescue, there must be God's rule. And they say to him, do to us whatever seems good to you. They're not unrealistic about their distress because they say, only please deliver us this day. They put away their foreign gods and they choose to serve the Lord wholeheartedly. There's a change in their behaviour that reflects a change of heart. And the beautiful thing is that their misery, the misery that their sin has caused, their misery calls forth God's mercy. He becomes impatient over the misery of Israel, it says. He becomes impatient over their misery. He must act. (laughs) Whereas his anger is kindled, it's not even in full flame. That's after 18 years of them essentially going off with other gods. The clearest picture I could give would be a faithful good godly husband whose wife has gone off with every other man in town for 18 years before his anger's kindled. That is long suffering. His mercy, on the other hand, is impatient. He cannot wait. His heart is merciful. His anger is long suffering. And his love for, for his people is enduring. His love endures forever, as we've just been singing. The Lord, it says in Psalm 103, verse 8, the Lord is merciful and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Their misery calls forth his mercy. And our misery, your sin, my sin, and the misery it causes, calls forth his mercy if you're in Christ if if you know Jesus Jesus does not pull away from you when you sin if you don't know Jesus <laughs> yeah but you do know your sin and you you are sensing this morning you need to go to him he does not pull away from you he said in Matthew 11 verse 29 Jesus said my heart is gentle and lowly. He is gentle and lowly towards any who will come to him in repentance. Gentle, like he's not harsh when we come to him for forgiveness. He's lowly. He, we can come to him. We have access to him. This is stunning news because there is no one holier. There is no one holy other than God. Jesus, the Lord Jesus, there's no one more holy and yet there is none other more approachable. He is gentle and lowly to those who would turn in repentance and come to him. There is acceptance in Jesus Christ and only in Jesus Christ. We should ask ourselves, if you're a Christian, you should ask yourself, how am I doing with knowing the gentleness and the the lowliness of Christ. And do you know the acceptance of God through Jesus Christ? If you don't, you can today. It's on offer today. Seek the Lord while he may be found. 
in Isaiah. It's, it's a, a book in the Old Testament. It's rich with prophecy of a coming Messiah. And it describes Jesus in this way in chapter 42, verse 3. It says of Jesus, he's a, a bruised reed. He, Jesus, will not break or a smouldering candle snuff out. You might feel that your faith is fragile, like a smouldering candle, barely aflame. It's, there's smoke, but it could just snuff out at any time. Or you might feel that your penitence, when you've sinned, is not strong, but very weak, like a bruised reed that could snap at any time. We heard a couple of weeks ago, Hugh shared that the depth of our feeling bad about our sin doesn't distinguish between godly grief that brings life, that brings salvation, and worldly grief or worldly regret that doesn't bring anything, doesn't bring any change. We mustn't feel that we have to get to the point that the Israelites got, where they were so severely distressed, then they cried out to God. It's not primarily about how bad we feel about our sin. It's about who he is, who Jesus is. <laughs> he will not break you. He will not crush you. Even when your faith is like a smouldering candle, it's barely there. Even when your heart is like a bruised reed and you're not as sorry as you ought to be. Newsflash, you won't be. <laughs> you won't be. You won't feel as bad as you should do about your sin. And if you go around, oh, you know, woe is me, aren't I terrible, aren't I bad? You are missing the point. You're not glorifying God. We glorify him by acknowledging who he is and what he has accomplished on the cross. Sorry, lost my place here. We need to, we can come to Jesus in our weaknesses. For he is strong. We can submit to him and follow him in every area of our life. We, we should be saying, we can say, do to me as it seems good to you, Lord Jesus. And if you're a Christian, you can be confident that he will give rest for your souls. That is what he offers, Jesus, the one who is gentle and lowly of heart. For any who will come to him, I will give you rest. <laughs> I will give you rest for your soul. Just as God is impatient over the misery of Israel, he is impatient over yours and my misery, over our sin. If we will only come to him and ask for forgiveness. <clears throat> Let's get back to the Israelites. <laughs> they are severely distressed. They've cried out to God and there's a new judge on the way. His name, I probably don't pronounce it correctly, Jephthah, is a social outcast. He's the son of a prostitute. He is driven away by his brothers, rejected by them. And he's collecting worthless fellows. Um, the picture I have <coughs> is some really tough and rough, probably criminal guys. So God's leader, 
as a new guy in town to deliver his people is a bit of a gang leader. <laughs> um, there you go. Gives me great um, confidence <laughs> and encouragement. God can do that. And only God can do that. He will choose the weak things, the small things, those that are not to glorify his name. And like Jesus, Jephthah's birth has a shadow over it. And he is rejected by his own people. He's a social outcast. These worthless fellows are associated with him. Well, when Jesus walked this earth, it was the self-righteous religious leaders who derogatorily said of him, well, he's the friend of sinners. <laughs> they didn't realise the truth that they were speaking. Jesus said, it's not the righteous that I've come for. It's sinners. It's not those who think they don't need forgiveness I've come for. It's for those who know. <laughs> if you know that you need forgiving by a, a beautiful, majestic, holy God, yeah, then Jesus has come for you. He came for you. <clears throat> As Jesus put it, it's not the well that need a doctor. The thing is, with sin, we're all sick. It's just whether or not you know it. When you know it, you go to the doctor. So when his brothers, the Gileadites, are oppressed, they're about to be destroyed by the Ammonites, they remember Jethro. He is a mighty warrior. <laughs> Let's get him. Um, they call him to, for, to rescue them. And, and in that way, in many ways, Jethro reminds us of Jesus. For the first time in Judges, the leader is chosen by the people. There's no mention of God raising him up. <laughs> Again, God's grace is stunning. You know, the people just doing their thing. We are about to be overthrown, conquered. Let's find the meanest, toughest warrior we can find to lead us, regardless of everything else, regardless that we drove him away, that we rejected him. Well, we need you now. And yet still God, through that man, delivers his people. <laughs> That's stunning. The Gileadites, Gileadites say to Jethro, come and be our leader. And Jethro's reply echoes God's reply to the Israelites in chapter 10. He says to them, did you not hate me and drive me out? Why have you come to me now that you're in distress? They know why. They tell him why. We need you to fight against the Ammonites. And they invite him to be their head. Jethro here appears to be shrewdly negotiating perhaps with, with the Gileadites. And he says, well, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. On the one hand, in agreeing to be their hero, he does, on the other hand, insist on being their head. And ultimately, that's what the Israelites are learning here, that with God's rescue comes God's rule. If he's to be their hero, he must be their head. God wants the Israelites' unadulterated devotion. He is their God, and they are his people. In any age throughout history, God's people, in our age, 
we are surrounded by the world's idols, whatever culture we find ourselves in. <clears throat> Money. Money was a God that Jesus spoke about more than any other. And it either serves you in the purposes of God or you serve it. Sex is a wonderful gift of God. But in the West, pornography has become one of the biggest addictions. Promising satisfaction with no strings attached. But it enslaves any and all who are involved in it. Leaving people needing more, like any idol, it seeks to enslave you to itself. Identity. This is me. This is who I am. It can feel wonderfully liberating, but not if it's not an identity that was ever intended, where it truly meant for an image bearer of God. I'm not saying I don't like diversity. I'm saying that there is identity and diversity that is beautiful and should be celebrated and glorifies the one who made us. But if we make identity in this or that our God, it will enslave us, whatever that is. It could be a, a seemingly good identity. A great middle-class white dad might seem a good identity to have, but if that's a God, that's no good. If you idolise relationships, when they break down, when they fail, the answer will seem like, I need a new one, a better one. He or she obviously wasn't the one, and you will carry on that way. Power. If only I had this, if only I achieved that, if I could do this. Whatever it is, you'll never have enough if you make a God of it. There's only one almighty God and he provides for all that he has made. <laughs> More than enough. Jesus said in Luke 16 verse 13, he said, you cannot have two masters because you will either hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And Judges shows us again and again that duplicity leads to disaster. Duplicity, trying to serve more than one master, leads to disaster. <laughs> I'm a poet and I didn't know it. Um, <laughs> I only just saw that. Um, God wants our unadulterated devotion. He wants our honor, unadulterated devotion. So, a few questions that are good to just check in with yourself from time to time. What do I spend my time dwelling on? What do I give myself to? Who or what gets my best? And who am I serving through the use of my money? Do you think that way? Who am I serving with the use of my money? Well, our culture would say, well, you, you serve, it's my money. Yeah. Who am I serving with the use of my money? 
sometimes we talk about time, talents and treasures. You could simplify it that way. How am I spending my time, my talents, abilities and my treasure, my money? Because the human heart will serve what it worships and it will worship what it serves always. And you ask yourself those questions and it will give you a good guide, a good ballpark figure of where you're going, how you're doing. In Jephthah there is a strange mix, or maybe not so strange actually, but there's a mix of faith on the one hand and serious folly on the other. He's, he's in the, the cloud of heroes. He's named as one of the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11. He spoke with faith at Mizpah. And he acknowledged the Lord as the judge of all before the Ammonites. And he put his faith in God to, to judge between them justly. He has faith in God. But he was a believer in a spiritually dark age. God's people were indistinguishable from the rest of the world, from the pagan cultures around them. And Jephthah is far more influenced, I think, than he realises. He does show faith, but there's great folly. And he's most famous for making a tragic vow. Why? Why did he make the vow he made? We'll go into it in a minute, but God's compassion, God's mercy has been ignited for his people. He, he is impatient over their misery. And the, the spirit of the Lord, it says, has come upon Jephthah. He has chosen him. He is going to deliver his people. But Jephthah decides he needs to make a vow. He says to God, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, whatever comes out of my house when I return shall be the Lord's and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Commentators say different things about what Jephthah did or didn't mean when he made that vow and what he did or didn't do afterwards. In Deuteronomy 18, God explicitly explicitly forbids human sacrifice as something that's detestable to him. So I guess Jephthah knew that. Or is he just so worldly that he's relating to God as the Ammonites or the other pagan people do? Is he, is he trying to reciprocate God? Well, if you give me the victory, I will give you this. There, there's a sense of Jethro seeking to make God obliged to him or at least return something, return the favour. I don't know if that's the right expression. Perhaps it was misplaced, like a misplaced application of um, the animal sacrificial system that was in place. He was thinking maybe it would be an animal coming out to meet him. Or maybe it was his violent life and the times that he grew up in that led him to kill his daughter. For whatever reason, the plain reading of scripture is that he did to her according to his vow. And so he offered her as a burnt offering. That's hard to fathom, isn't it? I think if I was preaching in some parts of the world, it might not be so hard to fathom, but it is 
here? There's loads of questions in there. <laughs> There's a severe warning in this for all of us. Do not be rash with our words. And do not be duplicit in our worship. The Holy Bible is our most precious gift for gaining wisdom and knowing true worship. We need to read it, digest it, breathe it in, live it out. Jesus has been accepted as the perfect sacrifice for our sin, for the sins of the world. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was rejected that you or I may be accepted. In Romans 12, verses 1 to 2, it says, if we've received the free gift of Jesus, then we are called to present ourselves as living sacrifices. Living sacrifices. We are no longer to be conformed to this world in thought or in deed. But instead, we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. It matters what we do with our bodies. So we need our minds renewed by the word of God. It's, it's, in a sense, it's to make our, it's home in us. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like the word, John says the word was made flesh. God is the word and he came. And there's a sense in which the word needs to make its flesh in us. <laughs> Sorry, like theologians are like, oh, I'm not sure about that. Um, but that just, I guess what I'm saying is we need to be increasingly transformed from the inside out so that we sound and look more and more like Jesus year in, year out. That is sacrifice that's pleasing to God. The story of Jephthah finishes with a awful, shameful account of tribalistic infighting just like with Gideon when he had victory the Ephraimites come in anger and and they they're upset because they've missed out on the glory of victory they're full of arrogance and hatred towards the Gileadites this in their mind lesser tribe not so important not so impressive not so holy and they say to Jethro, why did you cross over to fight the Ammonites and didn't call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you. Unlike Gideon, when we heard a couple of weeks ago, Jethro doesn't flatter the Ephraimites. He argues his case first. He says, well, when I called you, you didn't save me. I had to take my life in my own hands. Why then have you come to me this day to fight against me? And he's got a good point. The Ephraimites add insult to injury and they, they arrogantly goad him and call the Gilead, Gileadites their fugitives. We're coming to get you. You're ours. Instead of being met with fear and flattery, the Ephraimites are met with fury. The outcast judge, rejected by his own, now rejects his brothers violently. 42,000 Ephraimites 
are slaughtered at the hand of Jephthah and the Gileadites. This is the people of God killing the people of God. Jesus said, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And, and such as these don't inherit the kingdom of God. That's in 1 John 3, verse 15. Beloved, we are called to be those eager, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, as it says in Ephesians 4. In Christ and through Christ, all dividing walls between peoples, people groups, nations, tribes, languages, cultures have been demolished. Not, not gone. There's beautiful difference in his creation. There's wonderful differences in his creation. But the wall of hostility has been broken and destroyed in Jesus. Whether that's denominational, whether that's national, cultural, racial, ethnic or any other, Jesus calls his church into unity in the spirit. We are to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. I want to call up the, um, the band now as we come to a close. Um, I'm going to sit down shortly and Al's going to lead us in communion. Now, I want to encourage you, if, if the Holy Spirit has stirred anything in you or making you recognise things in you, that could be a, a way of feeling and thinking about a brother or sister in church or a group in church or outside of church. Something, anything really actually that the Holy Spirit wants to say, hey, let's deal with this, son. Let's deal with this, my child. Then when we do communion, just, um, just make sure you, you turn. Turn to Jesus.